0: a good and a good friend of the of You're listening to Vexed, a program on the Ephesus School Network. I'm Andrea Backus, your curator through biblical literature and its world and culture. Just as a museum curator selects, acquires, cares for, repairs objects, and discovers frauds and counterfeits, I'll be sifting through our world and culture for examples to help us better understand the Biblical text. Today's episode is the second part of a two-part discussion addressing the question, How Do I Read the Bible? In our last episode, which was part one, I said I would offer a list of suggestions in the form of a list of do's and don'ts, except that my list began with the don'ts. I offered three don'ts, three suggestions for how not to read the Bible. Today, we continue our discussion and I will offer three do's, three suggestions for how to read the Bible. Let's begin. Do number one, hear the Bible. Do not read the Bible, hear it instead. As I've said before, when you hear, you do not control, you receive. There is nothing for you to do. As a hearer, you give your attention, but that's it. You are not asked to give your opinion or analysis. You are not asked to understand anything. Just follow along. It's better for you in the sense that it is the anti-anxiety way. It is also congruent with the way the Bible was intended to be delivered. It was intended to be read aloud and to be heard. This method has been practiced for centuries and can still be found today. Over the centuries, monastic communities have observed this practice. In a 2019 article on monastic life in Byzantine-era Cappadocia, which is modern-day Turkey, Jason Borges describes this practice of reading the Bible aloud. He writes, quote, During the meal, one monk would read a sacred text aloud to provide spiritual nourishment for the soul. As one monk said, A refectory without the word of God is like a stable for animals." You can find this content at CappadociaHistory.com We find another example of this practice of reading the Bible aloud depicted on a 14th-century Italian fresco painted by Pietro Lorenzetti. Lorenzetti was known for his three-dimensional and spatial arrangements. He painted biblical scenes and the lives of saints. His work is said to be a foreshadowing of the Renaissance. He took as one of his subjects the life of Saint Humility, a 13th-century Italian nun and founder of the Valambrosian Convents. In his altarpiece, dated to approximately 1335, Lorenzetti depicts scenes from Saint Humility's life. This lovely work is currently housed in the Uffizi Gallery in Florence, Italy. The scene that caught my eye is a depiction of Saint Humility, the abbess of the convent and several nuns. The nuns are seated at a dining table. Saint Humility is standing high above them on a platform in reading. Though it is not explicitly stated, I presume, in keeping with centuries-old tradition, that she is reading the Bible to the nuns while they dine. Her posture and position of standing high above the hearers is the tell. It is the traditional way that the Biblical text was delivered. We find this centuries-old tradition in churches today. In many old Christian churches in the Middle East and Europe, the pulpits are built and mounted high above the pews, and many are exquisitely decorated. During the services, the reader takes the Bible and climbs up to the pulpit to read the Gospel reading of the day. You can find good examples of these pulpits online. Check out the pulpit at the Patriarchal Cathedral of St. George in Istanbul, Turkey. Also, the pulpit in Jesuit Church in Vienna, Austria. There are a few really interesting 18th-century pulpits in churches in Poland that are worth seeing. Architect Ben Heimseth posted an article entitled, Creative Pulpits from Historic Poland, with photos, on his website. Google that title and you'll find it. So coming back to where we started. Hear the Bible. Go to church on Sunday to hear it. I'm of the opinion, though, that that is not enough. Have the Bible read to you at home. Either have someone in your family read it aloud, or acquire it on audiobook and listen when you can give it your attention. Do number two, memorize the text. Learn the actual text. The biblical story was meant to be imprinted on the minds of its hearers. This was accomplished by rote learning. The definition of rote is the mechanical or habitual repetition of something to be learned. You might refer to a poem learned by rote in childhood. Another definition of rote is mechanical or unthinking routine or repetition. This unthinking repetition is what I am proposing. Memorization was the ancient way that classical literature was taught. The story and details were committed to memory. Once committed to memory, the story and its lesson would impress on the mind of the student. And this is how it would exert its influence without the interference of the student. The story works on the student. The student does not work on the story. The Bible was not meant to be analyzed or philosophized about As I have said before, this approach corrupts the story and distorts its lessons. As I have already cautioned, do not think, do not try to understand. Just learn the story by heart. I can hear your disquiet and you're asking, but why this particular method? Well, one reason is that rote learning as the primary tool of instruction is common to the major religious traditions primary authoritative texts were memorized in the language they were written or in an equally ancient translation jews memorized the torah in hebrew muslims memorized text from the quran in arabic and pre-vatican ii catholics Memorize texts from the Bible in Latin. And another reason is that this method of learning texts, learning by rote, works, and it has been around for a long time. Consider ancient Hindu culture. In their article, Masters of Memory, How the Ancients Learned the Vedas Perfectly, authors Arkana Garodia Gupta, and Shruti Garodia describe how ancient Indian students thousands of years ago learned the sacred Hindu texts known as the Vedas. They write, Teachers would recite the verses and students had to learn purely by listening. They had to listen, question, repeat, and chant until they got it. The process of memorization by listening was called shruti which means what is heard and is often used to refer to the vedas themselves now isn't that interesting another ancient tradition whose authoritative text is understood to be something heard something read aloud gupta and garodia point out that the stakes were high because the Vedas were not ordinary texts. They write, To add to the pressure, it was of utmost religious importance that these texts be passed on absolutely unaltered from one generation to the next. Not a word changed. By the end of their education, they were expected to know a set of texts flawlessly, word for word. Learning by rote is still around today in cultures around the world. In her article, entitled Learning by Heart in Quranic and Public Schools in Northern Cameroon, linguist and linguistic anthropologist Leslie C. Moore describes how rote learning is the primary mode of teaching and learning in Cameroon Africa today. She writes that in both Quranic and public schools, novices are guided by experts as they memorize a text and master its vocal and embodied rendering, often with little or no comprehension of the memorized material. Students are not expected to understand. Moore describes the workings of the Quranic schools. She writes, Quote, The elementary cycle of Quranic schooling is dedicated primarily to the reading, writing, reciting, and partial memorization of the Quran. A student may take anywhere from three years to a lifetime to complete this cycle. Comprehension of the lexico semantic content of the Quran is not a goal for the first several years of instruction. Thus, the malum, teacher, does not translate or explain the meaning of the Qur'anic texts that the student is learning to recite, read, and or memorize. In most cases, the malum does not know the meanings him or herself. The primary lesson objective is the faithful, that is, verbatim, fluent and reverent recitation of the text by the novice without assistance from the malum. Why else should we memorize the biblical text? Because by memorizing the text, the story imprints on you. This is the kernel of its power. Its teaching forms your mind. This is what ancient education was about, formation. This imprinting of story was the imprinting of values, and in the case of the Bible, the imprinting of its teaching. Social critic and professor of art at University of Arts in Philadelphia, Camille Paglia, describes this process of imprinting well in her explanation of art. In 2020, she gave a lecture about femme fatales in the work of Shakespeare. You can find it on YouTube. Professor Paglia is a brilliant mind. I would call her a Renaissance woman in that her erudition crosses domains from culture, society, and male-female dynamics to philosophy, literature, education, and art. I stumbled on this lecture. And as I watched, I was pleased to see that she had Shakespeare's work in her hand and would read from it as she gave her talk. Unlike so much of what passes for instruction today, she wasn't just talking. She was basing her comments, her analysis on Shakespeare's actual text. Impressive. Incidentally, if you're an art lover, I recommend her book on art over the centuries called Glittering Images. Coming back to the imprinting of the mind, Professor Paglia speaks about art in a way that is useful in understanding what I mean by imprinting. She teaches that one should open oneself to art. Don't expect to understand. Let art work on you, she says. You don't have the answers to art. You internalize it and it becomes a part of you. We have an obligation, she argues, to present young people with great works of art early on. They should be told, what are the great works of art? Art is formative, she insists. We have another useful example in the writing of George Orwell. In his 1940 essay and reflection on Charles Dickens, he marvels at how Dickens' stories and characters had been imprinted on English culture and formatted the minds of its people. He writes, with a note of sarcasm, that Dickens, quote, "...happens to be one of those great authors who are ladled down everyone's throat in childhood." In his analysis, Orwell remarks that Dickens has such a complete hold on the English mind that he is an institution. He writes, quote, I should doubt whether anyone who has actually read Dickens can go for a week without remembering him in one context or another. Whether you approve of him or not, he is there, like the Nelson column. At any moment, some scene or character which may come from some book you cannot even remember the name of, is liable to drop into your mind. Orwell describes Dickens' work this way. It is not so much a series of books. It is more like a world. He goes on to say that, to a surprising extent, all this has entered even into the minds of people who do not care about it. Even people who affect to despise him, quote him unconsciously, writes Orwell. This is the power of story, imprinting. Incidentally, Mr. Dickens was reared on the biblical text, and this would not surprise anyone who has read his books. Writer Keith Hooper, in a Christmas time 2017 article on Dickens, Cites the testimony of Dickens's reading tours manager, George Dolby. Mr. Dolby wrote that for Dickens, the Bible, quote, was the book of all others he read most, and which he took as his one unfailing guide in his life, unquote. On Christmas Eve, 1856, in a letter to clergyman R. H. Davies, Dickens himself Attests to his having been imprinted by the biblical text. Dickens writes There cannot be many men, I believe, who have a more humble veneration for the New Testament or a more profound awareness of its all sufficiency than I have. Do number three, repeat. Repeat, repeat. You must hear the biblical text over and over in order to commit it to memory. You have to know it. You have to know the story and its details. And in order to do that, you must repeat it. This is the function of our liturgy, to hear the biblical text, the story, again and again. This is why church is held every Sunday and in other Christian traditions more often than that. It's built in that our purpose is to gather to hear God's instruction repeated over and over, year after year. We know from neuroscience how we learn and how we remember things. And you guessed it, it is by repetition, with a twist. In 1885, German psychologist Hermann Ebbinghaus published his research on learning and memory. In a June 2021 article in Inc. Magazine, writer Jeff Hayden cites Ebbinghaus's work. Ebbinghaus distinguished what he called the forgetting curve. The curve is an illustration of how we quickly forget new learning. We learn something new and then within minutes, Over half of what we've learned seemingly disappears from memory. But what he discovered is that what we have learned is actually filed away. And on a second pass, you will recall and retain more of that learning. To bring this point home, Ebbinghaus gives the example of a poem. Suppose you learn a poem by heart and with time, forget it. Suppose that you again return to the poem and again learn it by heart. The second pass will come back to you more readily. Ebbinghaus describes what he calls spaced repetition and that this method is a powerful learning tool. Put simply, study something new, then put it away and come back to it a day later and review then put it away, and then come back two days later and review again. Increase the time intervals between relearning sessions. The more spaced repetition, the more you will retain. In the article, Hayden points out that forgetting is a critical part of the learning process and that we should not resist it or feel bad about it. He writes that, quote, Forgetting and therefore repeating information makes your brain assign that information greater importance. Unquote. So, to recap, to learn the Bible, try spaced repetition. You don't need large blocks of time or long study sessions or endless practice. Learn knowing that you will forget. Take a break and then come back to the content and review. Relearn it. Again, So ends our list of don'ts and do's. To wrap up our discussion, I'll offer some concluding comments. The biblical text dynamites a modern bias, which is the way we reflexively apply our philosophies and moralities to everything. The Bible is not a philosophical treatise or a lesson about morality. You can read Cicero for that. It's an epic instructional story, and it's a story that includes within its text instructions for the hearer. It is written within the text that its words are to be taken in and then remain on the lips of the hearer. The words are to be murmured, to be mumbled as from memory. The way you might mumble the words of a song that has stuck with you. You can't help it. It's stuck in your head. The word in Hebrew used in the Bible, which expresses this, is the verb haga. Haga can mean to utter words, to murmur as from memory. And it can also mean to mutter as in to complain or growl as a hungry lion might. There is a root definition, and then there are branches, related meanings. There is no one absolute meaning of a given verb. It depends on its grammatical form and its function in a particular sentence. Remember, there are seven verbal forms in Biblical Hebrew. Consider the book of Psalms. In Psalms, we find heavy use of the word haggah. We find it in Psalm 1, verse 2, for example. Let's hear it with the prior verse for context. This is the New King James Version translation. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. And verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So in verse two we have to repeat, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates. Read Haga day and night. Can you hear the problem? The translator has chosen the word meditate to render "haga," But to meditate is not to murmur or recite the words. To meditate is from a Latin root, which means to ponder, to mentally contemplate, to think over, reflect. But this is not what the text is trying to convey. The man in Psalm 1 delights in the law of the Lord and murmurs, recites the words of the law day and night. It does not say that he contemplates the words or filters them through his mental framework. Meditating is a philosophical notion that is not found in the Bible. And its use here in Psalm 1 verse 2 is incorrect. To haggah meaning to murmur the words as from memory, to recite the words, is found in the following verses in the book of Psalms. Psalm 35, verse 28. Psalm 37, verse 30. Psalm 63, verse 6. Psalm 71, verse 24. Psalm 77, verse 12. And Psalm 142, verse 5. Have a look at these and see how "haga" is sometimes translated as meditate and sometimes as declare, speak, or utter. This is not a simple matter. As you study, be careful with English translations. If you are reading and you hear a philosophical sounding word, chances are it's wrong. Stop and look up what the original word is in Biblical Hebrew and read the Strong's Concordance entry. See Strong's number 1897 to read the definitions of Haggah. Let us now review all that we have said about this topic, including what we discussed in the last episode, Part 1. We began with the statement that in the Eastern Orthodox Christian tradition, We do not read the Bible. We offered two reasons why that might be. And then we moved on to the question that prompted these episodes. How do I read the Bible? We offered our suggestions in the form of three suggestions for how not to read the Bible. And today, we continued with three suggestions for what to do, how to read the Bible. Finally, we concluded by explaining that the Biblical text, its words, are not meant to be meditated on the way we understand it today, but rather its words are to be recited from memory without thinking. There is a lot to consider here. I hope you will listen again and again. These things bear repeating because we are not accustomed to to approaching the Bible this way. As a student of the Bible, I hope you've been challenged by these suggestions and that you will seriously consider applying them. Until next time, this is Vexed. Vexed is a production of the Ephesus School Network.